a special edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global Dialogue Series. I'm Dr. Debbie Barnard, a member of the World Affairs Council's Advisory Board and Associate Professor of French at Tennessee Tech University. It is fitting that this series is called a dialogue, since today we'll be talking about foreign language education with Dr. Kathleen Stein-Smith. She's a foremost champion for this important effort through her writings, conference presentations, public speaking, and other activities to press the point that language matters. You can find Dr. Stein-Smith's bio in the program notes, but let me share some of her professional highlights. She's a recipient of the Chevalier dans l'Ordre des Palmes Académiques, the Order of Academic Palms, bestowed by the French Republic on distinguished academics and teachers, and a member of Pi Delta Phi, the National French Honor Society. She is chair of the American Association of Teachers of French Commission on Advocacy and serves an, on numerous boards and groups actively promoting foreign language education. Also, and most especially, she's the author of several books and publications on the importance of learning foreign language, most notably um, Multilingualism as a Global Competency, Skills for a 21st Century World, which came out in January of this year, and the U.S. Foreign Language Deficit, Strategies for Maintaining a Competitive Edge in a Globalized World, which uh, came out in, in 2016, excuse me. Dr. Kathleen Stein-Smith, welcome and thank you for talking with us today. Thank you so much uh, for having me here today. Um, it's such a great experience for me to actually be, albeit virtually, in Tennessee. Um, you mentioned just a few moments ago the AATF Commission on Advocacy. It's a wonderful group, you know, dedicated, expert, um, and absolutely helpful at all times. And two of our members, our active members, are uh, Tennessee Bob Peckham and Karen, Karen Sorensen out oh. from Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know both of them. I know, I know. So it's, it's doubly um, fun for me to be here today in Tennessee. Well, we're very, very glad to have you. And um, I wanted to ask you, what is the current state of foreign language competency in the United States? You know, that's a great question. And it really, it's, it's one of these funny questions. It depends how you look at it. You know, on the one hand, there are about 70 million people, according to the latest census figures, in the U.S. who speak a language other than English in the home, and most of whom also speak English. So there is actually a lot of foreign language, or I should say world language use, going on in the U.S. However, on the other hand, um, American students, U.S. students, are relatively unlikely to be studying or learning a language. Just according to the latest figures that I've seen, it is just under 20%. And so that's very concerning. So that would mean a lot of Americans still remain monolingual, speaking only English, understanding only English. Um, you know, foreign language education has um, in some ways declined in recent years. And when I say decline, that's in no way intending disrespect to foreign language educators. I have to say, uh, you know, I, I travel, I speak at conferences, I'm active in organizations. They are so dedicated, so professional, so highly educated and doing a great job and also busy advocating and supporting foreign language learning and use. However, um, enrollment has dropped and uh, it's tempting to, 
referred to lack of motivation. That was often, it was often considered that Americans were relatively unmotivated to learn another language. However, I think the real picture is a little bit below the surface and it is more, not so much a lack of interest or a lack of motivation, but it's lack of opportunity. You know, according to the America's uh, Languages Report, um, foreign language uh, programs have decreased in number significantly in our middle schools and most dramatically in our public schools. And these are US public schools. So that means that a smaller percentage of our youngsters, and especially those who maybe are economically, socioeconomically disadvantaged, they will most likely be served by public schools. They have a decreasing opportunity. The figures are really frightening. And so it may be for some cases, maybe a lack of interest. I mean, we're all human, we have different interests, but I think more importantly, it's that lack of um, opportunity. And then at the other end of the spectrum, in our post-secondary institutions, the um, foreign language enrollment now stands at something like 7.5% of students, down by half since the MLA started keeping these figures back in around 1960. And um, French, uh, which is uh, my primary language, um, French was really the most dramatically impacted in the last enrollment survey, you know, and programs, um, a, a, a significant number of programs overall have been lost as defined by the MLA. Um, and that is really of concern. So on the one hand, we've got vibrant language communities. On the other hand, we really are not giving our children and our students uh, opportunities to learn languages. And then that sort of a, 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 a negative synergy, because while we have youngsters living in um, homes where uh, languages other than English are spoken, once these children reach school age and go to school, they don't have the opportunity to build on that uh, early childhood language experience and perhaps maintain their heritage language. Or even those who might have lost a heritage language who want to reacquire it, they don't have that opportunity either. So it's very much a mixed uh, picture in terms of foreign languages, in terms of languages in the US. So there's no, or I wouldn't say no, but there's a, a, a dearth of cultivation for these, especially for these uh, children that learn a language at home or who are heritage speakers, they don't get to grow with the language necessarily. They have what they learned at home, but then they don't have the opportunity to continue studying that formally once they, you know, they go to school. I, you know, I agree wholeheartedly um, that uh, with what you said, that that is sadly the case. And yet um, it seems uh, apparent, and it's been certainly mentioned often, that this would be a wonderful resource to nurture rather than to um, ignore. And so how does this, um, this dearth of foreign language education programs, of foreign language teaching, how does it affect American interests in the world? You know, that's a really, um, you know, a, a, a huge question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you look at, um, for example, um, there's a recent report from ACTFAL, Making Languages Our Business. It was an earlier report from uh, the New American Economy 
um, not lost in translation. And both of those reports, and there are many others, those are just two that are top of mind. Both of those reports highlight the fact that foreign languages are in demand. And interestingly, it's not any one particular language. It's not any one particular type of job or region in the US. You know, so many languages are high in demand and across the country and in all types of jobs uh, from entry-level positions to uh, the executive suite. Um, the US um, is home to many, many international companies. There's a lot of foreign direct investment in the United States. Um, I know I had seen some figures recently that in my home state of New Jersey that there are over 100 just French companies alone doing business. Um, uh, international companies functioning in the United States employ more than a half a million people. I think the last figure I had seen was uh, 650,000. And while not every job in an international uh, company in, in operating in the US requires another language, many of those jobs are enhanced by knowledge of the, um, I guess the, the um, mother tongue of the parent company and opportunities open up. Um, and on the other hand, the US does a lot of trade with countries all over the world. We have trading partners everywhere. And um, again, not every job in every firm requires knowledge of other languages, but imagine um, how, the, how to what extent the ability to do business, to discuss, to make your point, to negotiate, um, you know, would be enhanced if you could actually speak the language of your trading partner, especially if you're the one who is trying to sell something or conversely to negotiate a deal that works to the advantage of both parties. Uh, you know, and sadly, um, uh, uh, many Americans assume that you know, everyone speaks English. And while that's a tempting assumption, and many, certainly many educated people around the world do speak English, you know, it's a tempting assumption, but um, not true, first of all. Um, there's a great report from the British Council that actually found that about one quarter, 25% of the global population speaks English to any useful extent. Now, certainly again, in the business world, in the world of scientific research and technology, many people in other countries will speak English. But then there's that other thing. Do they necessarily want to always have to speak English um, when, either you are a visitor in their country, visiting their offices or their laboratories or their facilities, um, do they want to always have to speak the language of the visitor? Um, might they not feel more comfortable? Might it not be more easy to develop that kind of team synergy if we also could speak to some extent their language also? Right, and yet there's, this trend towards globalization, right, across the United States in education, in primary schools, in secondary schools, in universities, and there's a big push for this. So is there a disconnect? Do you see a disconnect between the gen this general trend towards globalization and the decline of teaching of foreign languages? And if so, to what do you attribute it? Why? Why do we want globalization on one side, but we don't want foreign languages on the other? That is the best question ever. Um, and that is actually 
what drove me uh, to do my doctorate really in sort of mid-late career and to actually um, continue that research and writing. Um, the university, um, my university, um, was really uh, had for its um, logo for a long time that was the leader in global education. Uh, we were one of the earliest members, I think possibly the first member of the um, UN academic impact. And we were really very, um, and, and through that connection, I actually was um, privileged to serve as the French language facilitator in the many languages, one world uh, program. Um, that the Global Youth Forum that was sponsored by the Academic Impact. So I see totally this um, need for global learning. Um, and I see totally the need for multilingualism as part of global learning and also in the development of global citizenship skills. You know, how indeed are we going to work together as we're going to have to? to effectively address all these complex global issues that are out there. Um, climate change is the one that I have top of mind, but there are countless others. And again, there's that idea of working uh, harmoniously, working efficiently in um, a multilingual team. You know, the UN in its um, uh, statements on multilingualism stresses the importance of accurate and timely communication in a variety of languages. And even they, in, 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 and increasingly so, they move beyond the six official languages in the publication of many um, important documents. But so in the face of all of this, why is foreign language learning um, um, declining? You know, and it's tempting to say again, that we're reluctant because we just think the whole world speaks English. But I think that's, I don't think that's the whole case. I think that's like an easy, answer and it kind of in a sense like lets us off the hook if that's the case then we don't have to do anything further i really think again and i know i, I mentioned this earlier but it's on my mind constantly and more and more that it really is this lack of opportunity you know um i look at this and i see that for example um private institutions private schools a higher percentage, for example, of private elementary schools than public offer uh, language programs at the elementary level. Um, I think a great exception to that is really the bilingual revolution here in New York City, where it is New York City public schools that are offering these dual language immersion programs in round about a dozen languages, okay, at this point. And I mean, that's wonderful. And that's what we really have to be doing. I know um, I've read about states like Delaware and Utah who have really been very um, active in developing public language, public school language programs that, for the early age student. Uh, Louisiana has its French language immersion programs, for example. I mean, these are all, and there are more, I'm not meaning to leave anybody out. These are just ones top of mind. But I think, again, it's getting back to that lack of opportunity. And opportunity means sir, that the programs exist, all right? And also that they're affordable. You know, so they have to be really in settings either where funding is gonna be provided or where there are no fees, AKA our public schools. But then I think further, you know, what about the youngster who lives in a relatively um, remote area? What about the um, person who is mobility impaired? 
or for a variety of reasons, cannot travel a distance to a school or to a college or university that offers the foreign language program that they may want or the courses that they may want. Um, you know, I think of all kinds of issues, the person who has uh, caregiving responsibilities, the person who uh, is, um, has some sort of a, a handicap that will prevent them from going. And I think online learning is a big part of a solution um, that for those people, I think there are two factors that can actually get more people involved in foreign language learning, assuming that the motivation is there. And part of our job is really to talk about why, um, why it's cool, why it's fun, why it's important, um, why it's very much future-oriented to learn other languages. I think that's already there in our students, in their parents, in our communities. Um, and we can talk about that, but I think the real key here is access. And I mean, that's where, and I know this sort of veers off into the realm of the political, but that's where language policy comes into play. You know, I was uh, fortunate enough, I uh, went to school in Quebec and uh, now I'm dating myself here, but I was a student in Quebec uh, in the years following the um, quiet revolution and the, uh, the development of the, the statute for the official languages of Canada. So language and linguistics and bilingualism, they were in, just in the air constantly, you know, and, and in an interdisciplinary kind of way, everybody was talking about it, not just language educators or people who speak other languages. And I think that's really, that can be an inspiration for us. Uh, were there a language policy uh, in the US that would create a framework that really would enable um, funding for programs in public schools, for online programs. And then of course, we can't forget our community organizations. You know, we uh, talked earlier about um, the families, the heritage speakers. What about these parents and grandparents who want the little ones to maintain their heritage languages. A lot of heritage language communities are very, very active. You know, top of mind, um, I was recently in New Hampshire at my first in-person conference in, since the pandemic. And um, uh, I was impressed hearing about, um, for example, the Franco-American Center in New Hampshire and um, all the activities that they offer in person and online and uh, really, and I believe free of charge, most of them. And um, you know, for people of all levels um, of linguistic ability, of all kinds of interests, all ages, and there are organizations like that. Um, you know, in New York City, there's of course the French Institute, and then there's Albertine. Albertine offers um, programs in French and English in person online. So therefore accessible really to everyone. So there are lots and lots of community-based organizations around the country doing that. And I think we also need to encourage those initiatives as well. Do you think then that language learning is something that should be mandated from the top down? For example, here in Tennessee, there is a requirement for high school students that they must have um, two units of foreign language to graduate. And Tennessee has routinely led the nation in foreign direct investment for the 
I don't think we're number one right now, but we have been recently. Yes, yes. But at the same time, there's this paradox of a waiver that students can request that will waive their requirement for foreign language. So foreign language is a requirement, but it's a soft requirement. It's one that can be, it's fungible. It can, it can be eliminated if, or waived if necessary. So do you think that a, a, a foreign language policy, a national policy or a state policy is called for? How do, how do, we, what do, how do we fix this? You know, that's a very interesting question because um, on the one hand in the US, um, different from many other countries in the world, education is primarily a local structure. Um, you know, we, local school districts, local school boards um, uh, really exercise a great deal of influence. However, our federal government does uh, exercise a great deal of influence. And there have been hearings um, uh, on Capitol Hill over the years. There are initiatives going on right now. Um, you know, and um, I think it's well known to the, in, within the federal government that federal jobs are going without takers. They're unable to be filled because people in various departments of the federal government, various agencies do not have the language skills that are needed. And these jobs are, are basically remaining unfilled. And I think that um, a federal, um, policy on language learning is, I think, a some, we would not be the first country in the world to have a language policy. You know, I mentioned the example of Canada. Um, but in, in essence, um, not only do we not have a language policy, we don't even in the US have an official language. You know, we never have, we have a de facto official language of English, but there's nowhere in the law that says that English is the official language of the US. Now, there are many, many alternatives that could be included in a language policy. And, you know, I'm honestly, I'm not a government, uh, I'm not a lawmaker, but I would think there can be uh, one or more official languages for this country. Some states in the US, about half of the states have an official language, but our country overall does not. And, you know, I think there can be. Um, an initiative to have um, educators come together and perhaps look at the curriculum being offered in our school. You know, we've had um, initiatives in the past. We certainly had No Child Left Behind, which certainly looked at curriculum. And even though it was a federal initiative, had tremendous impact um, on education across the country. And many will say it was a little bit tough on areas like foreign languages and areas in the humanities that there was perhaps less time for them in the curriculum. Um, perhaps we could have a look at that. Um, when you say top down, um, that works to a certain extent. But I mean, we are um, a democracy and education is um, still largely local. So while I think a discussion at the highest levels would be very, very beneficial, and I think possibly some discussion of a language policy or recommended requirements and funding from the government. You know, and funding often comes along with recommendations and requirements. That would be most helpful. And I know there are people, for example, at JNCL who are busy working um, on Capitol Hill 
And um, I know I, I, I love their advocacy day that they do. Um, you know, I had the great opportunity to participate and actually talk to staff members of um, my representatives in the Congress and in the Senate. And I think that kind of grassroots political involvement is excellent. Um, you know, we are all citizens, they are there to hear us. And, uh, you know, I think that's, that's great. You know, on the other hand, a lot of it is local. And I think that's where um, people who truly believe in language learning and use can be very active. You know, at the state level, we have organizations like Codafil. They do great work. They've been doing it for 50 years in the schools. And also they've had things like the WE initiative in um, businesses in Louisiana who had, in this case, French speaking personnel offering products and services en français. Those are just two examples. There are lots and lots more. I know, for example, my state of New Jersey, we're very tiny, but actually in that last enrollment survey that was done by, I'm guessing the American Councils, um, New Jersey actually had the highest percentage of students overall enrolled in a, a, a foreign language class. And I, I mean, I wish it was, I wish it was 100%. I think we were a little over 50%. And the average is under 20% of students being enrolled. So New Jersey, I think, was the top figure if memory serves. And I'm very proud of my state. And um, I don't see a lot of coercion. Um, for students to take other languages. I think a lot of it is that local communities recognize that this is good for the children and we want our kids to have the best and we want our future generations to, to um, I, and I know this term sounds a little bit uh, arcane, but the term self-actualize. We want every child to have every opportunity to be that best person that they can and want to be. And I think that is so important that activism at the local level. That's actually a great deal of what has created the bilingual programs in the New York City Public School. It's parents and communities who have really advocated and developed partnerships with schools and school administrators. So I don't think any one approach is the, the, the only answer, but I think if people were working at the federal level, at the local level, people talking to of state legislators. Um, I think all of that comes together. And that's why everybody can play a part. Um, you know, I think language advocacy is the ideal grassroots kind of advocacy. We don't all have to be um, uh, experts. We don't all have to be um, educators. We don't all have to be any particular, um, uh, have any particular skill set. First thing we have to believe. You know, this is values driven, uh, has to be core value, believe that multilingualism is a good thing. It's good for people, um, make them, make their lives more interesting and empower them to have relationships, conversations, experience travel in a different way, um, to maybe have a better job and earn more money also, but that's not the be all and end all. Um, and everybody can be an advocate if you believe you know, you take what skills you have, what time you have, what funding you have available, you know, whether you can, um, some people really take it to the next level and start petitions and run for office, run for school board. I mean, you know, and others um, like the rest of us, we do what we can with the talents we have and the skills we have and the time we have. 
Um, for example, language educators are busy people. Uh, they're teaching all day. They're also, through their wonderful teaching, they're advocating for languages in their classrooms. But um, you know, anybody can start uh, a social media uh, account. Um, anyone can uh, write a letter to the editor. Anyone can um, uh, create a blog. Um, you know, anyone can talk to or write to their representative, either at the local, state, or national level. Um, so advocacy, if you believe, and I think if everybody did believe in the importance of languages and language learning, and um, uh, took one little action, you know, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, even whatever it may be, to support and to promote language learning, um, yeah, I think that would go a long, long way toward making languages part of our life. So it's a multi-level approach that you're advocating for, that you're recommending rather, multi-level approach. You said that so much better than I did, thank you. <laughs> no, no, um, no really yeah, we did. can all do something, <laughs> right? But I guess my final question, and this is maybe the hardest one as a foreign language educator myself, how do we convince the average everyday American that learning a foreign language is important? Because so many times, for example, in my university, we have students who come and they take a placement test and they score pretty high on, on the placement test, but then they go and they're in a different department. They're not in, uh, you know, they don't want to be a French or a Spanish major or a German major, but they go to see their advisors and the advisor says, well, you don't need foreign language for your major because you know, you're going to be a biologist or you're going to be a, you're going to be a physicist or you're going to be a mathematician or you're going to be a social worker. So how do we break that barrier to get people to understand that it, like you said, it doesn't matter about, you know, the money is a, is a fringe benefit, the, um, the status is a fringe benefit, but that it's, there are so many other advantages. How do we, what do, we, what do you recommend to combat that? Not combat, yeah, there's but a, there's to a, there's, a, there's an old fashioned term, it's called the elevator pitch. And I guess nowadays people refer to it as talking points. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's so important that all of us who care, who believe, whether we're language educators or, or concerned citizens or parents or community members, we need to have our talking points ready at all times and never ever pass up an opportunity to talk to somebody. Um, you know, be it a school principal who said, oh, I took French in high school and I don't remember anything or I could never speak it. That you have an opportunity there rather than just running away and saying, oh no, um, you have an opportunity there to talk to that person. And then you might have a parent who will come to you and say, I want my child to have a good job. You know, how is this gonna help him or her? And you have also then the person who is converted among the converted, among those who believe. But your talking point is going to be different whether you're talking to a prospective student, a parent, an institutional decision maker, someone who maybe had a less than stellar experience with foreign languages. And you can start off by telling them, you know, foreign language classes have radically changed, just like everything else in the world. They're radically different than the foreign language that you may have taken or your mom or grandma might've taken uh, as a youngster. It, it's a whole new world in foreign language classroom as well as out in the rest of the wide world. But your, your talking points are gonna be different 
for each person. And that's the thing, you have to have your talking points ready and then you have to make that snap judgment really in that moment, what talking points, which talking points are gonna work best. And you cannot pass up an opportunity. You know, you really can't be shy, can't be um, tongue-tied. That's hard though, but you can't be tongue-tied. Um, you can't um, use the same talking points for everyone. And you have to always be ready. Even if you yourself, you run into somebody in the supermarket and the conversation starts, you honestly have to probably put your urgency to get home to cook dinner uh, on the back burner, literally, for a moment and take time to engage that person. You know, any opportunity that you get, and if we all do that, if we all take that opportunity and have our talking points ready, you know, for some people, it'll be the statistics. For other people, it'll be in the local community. You know, we need, um, we need interpreters in our hospitals, in our courts. We need, certainly, and you mentioned social workers a moment ago. Certainly, if you're going to help people, you know, it's a lot easier to build that rapport with them. You know, you might don't even have to be perfect in that other language. No one's going to expect you to have the skills of a mother tongue speaker. But if you know a little bit, that goes such a long way. No, that's great advice. And I'm, I'm going to start working on my elevator pitch right now. <laughs> I'm sure you have a wonderful one. Um, well, it's not as, not as primed as, as you suggest. I mean, those are fantastic suggestions to have a, a range of points and to tailor them to the situation. For example, I hear all the time, oh, I took French in high school, but I don't remember any of it. And Perhaps that could be countered with, well, do you know that you have done something significant to stave off dementia in your later years? You know, there are wonderful, wonderful um, lists out there on, on many websites. I know Actful has a great list of the uh, benefits of foreign language learning. And it, um, there, it includes things like that the neuroscientists understand. I do not understand them. I'm not a neuroscientist, but there are great, great benefits, uh, reasoning, um, cognitive benefits of all sorts, academic benefits, and that part about staving off dementia. Um, you know, if you use a language, not just that you took it in school, but actually use it on a regular basis, it helps you. It's like going to the gym for your brain. Right. And um, for people that are interested in consulting these talking points and in upping their advocacy game, for foreign language, the actual website that Dr. Stein Smith referred to is ACTFL, that's the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages.org. So you know, those, there, those points can be found there. There are great associations devoted to languages. You, know, you have ACTFL at the national level, you have JNCL lobbying for us in Washington. And but then you also have national associations for all of the different languages that are commonly taught in the US. Um, you know, AATF certainly, AATSP, AATG, AATI, and on and on. And then you've got state and regional associations. You can certainly reach out to any of those associations, whether you're an educator or not, for information or check their website. They all have great, great resources out there on offer. Yes. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Stein-Smith. We've been talking with Dr. Kathleen Stein-Smith, a foremost advocate of foreign language training in America. 
Thank you so much for inviting me here today. Um, if anyone listening to this really um, wants to discuss this, certainly feel free to email me. May I give my email address? Yes, please do. Okay, Kathy Steinsmith at Gmail. You can email me. And if it's a specifically a, a question related to French language advocacy, certainly if you wish, I can put you in touch with the AATF Commission on Advocacy. But we are all in this together. Uh, languages, languages and language learning are all good. So it doesn't need to be a question just on French. Um, but if you do want to contact me, I'd be happy to talk with you. Well, thank you so much. And I think that your, your contact information, your email address will be included in the notes on the, under the recording as well. So um, thank you so much again for joining us and for talking about this very important matter because language does matter. And thank you to all of our viewers for watching this program. It was made possible through the work of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. You can support its global awareness programs through your membership and donation. Check the website tnwac.org to join or make a gift. And lastly, please join us in advocating for foreign language education in your community. Au thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank, good luck with all the good work that you do. Thank you. Au revoir.